Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Sir Terry Waite was held hostage in Lebanon in the 1980s and 90s while a special envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie. He was held in captivity for the best part of five years, most of this time in solitary confinement. Last week, he was appointed a Knight Commander of the Order of St Michael and St George in the King's Birthday Honours List. When his book Solitude, Memories, People, Places was published in 2017, he was interviewed by Sarah Merrick. The book is available in paperback from the Church House Bookshop. When you're in solitary confinement for a long period of time, naturally you become concerned that you might lose your mind because you see your skin go white because there's no natural light. You lose muscle tone because there's no exercise that you can do because I was chained up for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day and sleeping on the floor. No books and papers no one to speak with. And this goes on not just for a month, not just for a year, but for almost five years. And as you see your physical body deteriorate, you wonder if you will deteriorate mentally and spiritually. And somehow you have to find a way, or I had to find a way, put it like that, of keeping mentally and spiritually alive. And the way in which I did it was by trying to exercise my brain, utilising my brain, uh, in a way that would enable me to keep uh, mentally alive. And so the first book I wrote, Taking on Trust, was actually written in my head in those years. Not every comma or sentence, but the general writing of the book, using memory, which is also another important uh, fact. And I also, the book here, this is this book... Um, out of the silence, not all the verse in this book, which is very simple, was written in captivity, but it's had its genesis there, because I used to write verse as well as a narrative. And good language, in my view, like good music, has the capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. And where I think the church has not fully appreciated the fact that the regular use of language is in fact um, an aid and a spiritual aid to people. Um, When I was a boy, I was a chorister, and in a very small uh, little church, it was a daughter church of the parish church, so it was very small in a small village, it still had a choir. And my father always insisted that I went, if I was going to go to church and be a chorister, I'd better keep it up. So I went, often reluctantly. But unconsciously, during those years, the words of the prayer book and the words of the Psalms, the words of the Bible, had stuck in my mind. I can't remember a sermon I ever heard, but I can and could remember those words because they've been repeated Uh, year in, year out. And later on in captivity, when I had nothing, there in my mind, I had a store of language. I had it there. 
So we shouldn't despise entirely learning by rote. And you often find, as I've often found, I even found it just last night, that when people are very ill or in the latter stages of life, they would repeat a prayer from childhood or repeat something from childhood because it's there. Only last night I was with an old man who is dying, he's 92. And he said, will you pray with me? And I said, yes. And so we said, simple colic, light in our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all the perils and dangers of this night. But where, you see, where we have, in many churches, where the use of regular language is being put to one side, and you have extempore language, um, there is a place for extempore prayer, but it should not be a dominant place in liturgy, uh, in my view. Um, liturgy also, I think, has been misunderstood by many. It's been merely interpreted as a commemorative act. It is a commemorative act, but that commemorative act is in fact also um, a great pageant. This is the Orthodox, they understand that fully, that you put on a pageant, you, you engage all the senses, you engage the senses of listening, of music, of, 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 of smell, of incense, of movement. And the great and unique thing about the Orthodox service as well is that you give the individual participant an opportunity for their own private devotion within the context of a great pageant. And so therefore, an individual can move, light a candle, go to a particular corner of the church, come back and be a participant again in the pageant, which is being reenacted before their eyes. Now, that, that drama um, is something that is really, uh, as I said, fully engages all the senses. Um, it's, it can be tedious for I minutes, mean, it's a long service. It doesn't have to be three hours, but it is often three hours in Orthodox service. But where we've lost that in our church worship, in an attempt, and often a mistaken attempt, to be popular, um, we've lost something that is in fact extremely valuable. But at the same time, it goes back further, because it goes back to the question of how do you educate today? How do you educate young people in that? How do you educate people to understand that there is... Um, to understand religious language, put it like that. And one of, the, one of the dichotomies and difficulties of today is that um, religious language is not understood, even by our cleverest thinkers who write books, secular books, about and castigate, if you like, religion. What they're doing is they have not learned the language of religion. They have not understood the language. And therefore, if they understood it, they're behaving as though they don't understand it, and therefore they dismiss it. The kingdom. There is a realm beyond time, immune to the rigours of inquiry that formulate, measure and categorise. Familiar tools fail to illuminate the highways of this kingdom. A kingdom without height, breadth, depth, a kingdom infinite, not of this world, but embedded in the depths of soul. How can we know such a mystery? How can we touch the intangible? How can we prove that which cannot be captured in scientific tables? Be still, listen to the inner voice, 
Learn to love. Let compassion guide your actions. Walk calmly through the midst of unknowing. The kingdom is yours. Why this book and why now? Well, I wanted, uh, having experienced solitude myself and trying to make what was a negative experience or could have been a negative experience and trying to convert that into something that was a positive experience um, I went through a whole process uh, of isolation of seemingly emptiness of times when I felt that I was learning and gaining nothing and slowly, slowly I was able to convert that experience over the years into a creative experience. For example, as I've already mentioned, um, I see I saw my physical body begin to deteriorate rather more quickly than I'd hoped for and had to do something to prevent that or to slow that down, if you like. And I believe that today we live in a world of great suffering, where many people experience, as they always have done, different forms of solitude. First of all, about suffering. I don't believe that suffering, in every instance, need destroy totally. I believe that from suffering, often something creative can emerge. Um, and if you want examples of that, look at some of the great works of art that have emerged from suffering, or the central symbol of the Christian faith, which is a symbol of suffering beyond which you find symbols of hope. Uh, and I wanted to explore solitude in its different aspects. So I set off on travels to visit people who lived in the most solitary places um, in the middle of the Australian bush, um, rough and ready characters, but to get them to talk about their experience. Then... Uh, you know, I went to see people who have experienced solitude that's been pressed on them by no fault of their own. For instance, the uh, Svetlana Stalin, who experienced solitude because of her father's uh, behaviour and misdeeds, and she could never escape that. She was isolated from many people whom normally she would have wished to have conversation with, but couldn't because they knew her father and they knew her. And they ostracised her for that. Or Myra Hindley, who in latter years converted to the Roman Catholic faith, um, was, I believe, repentant, but would never escape that isolation because of the terrible nature of her behaviour years past. And she was trapped by her behaviour. And then other people who, for instance, in a big city, where someone lives alone, cut off from all relatives, has no one to talk with, and is unable to make that a creative experience themselves for a variety of reasons, and is adrift, is, is lost. And then I... In, in, so what I wanted to do was, and I deliberately did not include in the book, people who have chosen solitude for religious purposes, because I felt enough has been written about them. You know, you can read about hermits until... You know, <laughs> you've had enough. Um, and so it was trying to be contemporary examples. I mean, there were still 
people like Sister Wendy and others who, um, you know, have got off into solitude. But I, I thought nothing's been written about that. And I simply wrote it. I recorded, finished the recording. Well, I did visit George Blake, another, again, an example of someone who, whose wife was um, totally, totally surprised uh, when it was discovered that he was a double agent. She didn't know. And there's a poem about it in here. I knew you, but I never knew you, goes the poem. Um, and that was another example of, of, of solitude, how he lived this double life. He kept part of himself totally apart, totally apart from anybody else, the people he was working for. And then, of course, emerges in Russia. I went to see him in Russia. I'm finishing off with the story with a meeting a matron of a hospice who has been with people as they go on that last solitary journey. And she speaks there quite movingly about the importance of a, of a pastoral ministry often exercised by, by nurses, by doctors, not necessarily by clerics or others who minister to people in these last, last stages of life. And so I just put those together and let the reader draw their own conclusions and see you know, what they make with the hope that it might encourage people to examine where they feel, where they, if they experience solitude and how they themselves can or have made it creative, can or will make it creative. So that's really, really it. And how, it sounds to me from the way you're talking and having read the book as if that it was a very long process. Um, I'm wondering how long it took you from the Well, it is a long process. Idea. I mean, that goes back over some of the stories in there, go back many years, yeah. because it, it's something that... Um, Yes, I've been mulling over for a long time. And now I thought is a time to capture these before they totally fade from memory. I mean, I'm 78 now. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much longer I've got. <laughs> None of us do, of course. But I thought, well, before I finally uh, depart this life, I will uh, try and record some of these experiences along this theme and make them available to others. And this is your fifth book, I think? Probably the fifth, right? yeah. Yes, I think it probably yeah, is. Yeah, yeah I think it probably is. Yeah. And I was struck reading it um, about what what do you, what for you is the difference between solitude and isolation and loneliness. And yeah, I think loneliness. Yes, I understand. Yes, I think loneliness is a state of mind, really, um, where you feel bereft. Um, again, just speaking to this old man last night, what's happened with him is that his wife, with um, whom he's been married for many, many years, uh, has gone into hospital or gone into care, and he's living by himself. And he refuses, he refuses to take accommodation which has been offered to him. He, he wants his own independence, not uncommon. And I sat with him for an hour or two. And he said, I'm lonely. I'm, I'm, I really am lonely. And he said, I've even gone so far as to think of committing suicide. Well, we spoke for quite a long time. But I think 
in his case, I could definitely understand his loneliness because, yes, I felt it. But what he had not done in his life and what many people do not do is somehow realise that that loneliness can be converted because within yourself there is a whole rich, lively inner world. Um, I'll give an example. I, when I was in captivity, I decided that this was an opportunity rather than a disaster. An opportunity to take an inner journey rather than... Um, because any external journey was prohibited. I was chained. I couldn't move. So you take that as an opportunity. Now, when you take an inner journey, you discover, of course, two sides of character, the light and the dark good or evil, whatever you may call it. And I can well understand why it is that when people go in analysis, for example, it's more preferable to do analysis with another person. If you do it by yourself, you run into the danger, or run into the inevitable, of coming across the dark side. And if you dwell on that unduly, you fall into deep depression. Because you say, I'm a miserable sinner, as the prayer book puts it, you know, and so on and so forth, you wallow in that. What you have to do in a situation of isolation like that is somehow learn how to balance um, the both sides. Not you can't dismiss the dark side totally, it's always with you. And if you constantly say, well, I'm constantly walking in the light, that too, in my view, is um, a mistaken view. Um, few people can walk, if anybody can walk totally in the light, Somehow you have to begin to find how you can best integrate yourself within and be integrated within. And that was what I attempted to do. Which is admirable. I'm wondering whether you think everybody has those inner resources. If you've never developed that, um, I don't know quite what I would call it, but that inner core, that, that kind of resilience, that ability to inhabit your inner self, um, perhaps because of your upbringing or whatever. Do you think everybody has got the capacity to do it? I don't think necessarily everybody has the capacity to do it. Um, but I think this is where, one example, the church has a role to play in, uh, you know, in educating people, in educating people how to understand an interior life, how to have an interior spiritual life, which is not just, uh, how do I put it? I think that's the role, a, a, a important role of the church. Of course, it becomes increasingly difficult now for church to have sufficient contact with people, given the fact that the way things are changing and the way society is becoming a secular society, the way religion is being eased out of, of the school curricula, and um, you know, no longer do you have the morning services and so on. So it's much more difficult, and the church does have to find ways of contacting people. But I find, I find myself, and have found, found it time and time again, when I, I do quite a lot of public speaking, and I find that when I speak or when I read the poems and use this in a non-religious language, if you like, immediately people are spiritually aware. Because there is, there is, a spiritual hunger in people. There is a desire for a life beyond the material, and it is not necessarily met in um, 
in ways that sometimes we think um, the church should meet these ways. I've wondered, I've read um, uh, some background interviews with you and where you've said you were quite a, um, a quite, uh, I think you said a, a lonely child or a self-sufficient no. child. No. I think, were you an only child? Well, I, well, lonely insofar as I was um, in, brought up in a small village and the children in that village who were marked out, if you like, were the children of the clergyman, the children of the policeman and the children of the school teacher. This is a small village going back 70 years. And uh, I was a child of a policeman. Mm. So, yeah. in a sense, that does set you apart yeah. because you can't get up to any misdeeds without it being reported to your father. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> you know, so that gives you that certain sense of isolation. It's not uncommon yeah. and it's not overbearing, overburdensome, but it's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, you, you unconsciously almost develop a certain independence and resilience to that and a certain independence from the herd, if you like. Yeah. Uh, you don't necessarily always then go along with the herd because that's the way you've been brought up. Yeah. And, and I thought again, I, you, I also read that you spent time in hospital with scarlet fever. I did. And you, were, you know, used to read a lot and all those things. And I wondered whether you think some of that stood you in good stead. I don't mean it made it easy. No, no, no. Well, I think, it's, I think at the time... It was, I, I must have been very young, I think it must be about three when I had scarlet fever. And I can still remember vividly my mother and father uh, coming to see me and being behind a glass window because they were strictly isolated in those days, strict isolation for that, that disease. And I still remember being terribly puzzled, even at that young age, why can't they come and see me? So there was that sense of... of from a very early age of separation. And I think eventually that has turned to be, I've turned it round to be creative, but I do remember it being quite painful. Mm. And uh, also this standing apart being not particularly easy position to take. Mm. So I'm not in any way suggesting the process is necessarily an easy process, nor necessarily a quick process, yeah. you know, yes. but something that, that occurs across life. You yes. grow gradually, move to yeah. more to a greater independence. But I do find that if I can have periods of now of, of isolation, if you like, of solitude, which I look for, it stands me in much better stead to be with other people, yeah. to be um, because I can then be more fully with other people. Yeah. And that's another thing that I learned from captivity: that's that um, although one needs to plan in normal life, one needs to plan for tomorrow and the future, make sensible provision, not at the expense of living now. Um, you know, the old injunction, live for the day, uh, whilst you don't take it absolutely by absolutely not thinking about the future, of course, but to live for now is really important. You know, the fact that you and I, and three of us, are together and speaking together now, um, you know, you are the most important people in my life at this point because this is our life. This is your life. This is my life. It's something we may remember, we may forget, but it's, it's our life. We're here. We can make it as full as possible. 
And where we simply sail through life and say, well, I can't wait for retirement, I hate this yeah. job. And there are many people, unfortunately, who have to do jobs they don't like. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, is something that's a, a deadening fact about modern society. If only we could all do things that we like. Well, nobody can do everything they like all the time, but we can, as far as possible, make life as full as possible in the moment, in the moment that life is here. That's what I think I learned. I think from what you're saying now and also from the book, um, some of the things we're talking about are things that have taken a lifetime. Hmm. I'm interested, I found myself thinking about meeting you and thinking that in the public perception, you are defined by something that Mm. happened 30 years ago Mm. and I'm wondering how much that feels the case for you personally at a personal level do you feel defined by it Mm. definitely Um, uh, an event that took place 30 years ago has simply put me into the category of headline frequently used former hostage and that's the definition well there are certain things you can't get away from. I mean, in a very different sphere, um, Tony Blair will be former Prime Minister, whether you like it or not. You know, he can't escape it. There are certain things you can't escape in life. What I say is, you take it and uh, live with it and try and utilise it creatively. Because I've found, for example, that by being former hostage um, and understand... Well, let me go back one step. One of the things that happened... In, in those years, which I didn't realise at the time, my sympathy for those who are on the margins of life was uh, developed into empathy. Mm. Um, sympathy to feel sorry for, empathy to feel as people feel, which led me, of course, then to founding Hostage UK, which is developing now into Hostage International, to be closely associated with the development of, uh, become its president eventually of the Mayors for the Homeless, and working with these various marginalised people around the world in prisons and so on. Now, what I've tried to do there is take the experience of those years, and that gives you a lead-in, because people say, whenever I go into a prison and talk with prisoners, immediately they say, you know, you know, and therefore you can understand us. And I can, to a degree, to a certain extent, not completely, but to a degree. And so what one tries to do is take the experience of being defined in that way and utilise it creatively, mm-hmm. rather than complaining about it and say, oh, this changed that. You can't, you can't change your past. You live with it. And, and that sounds like you've made a conscious decision. I'm wondering if it was, if that decision to view it like that was immediate or whether that's again part of a process. I think it's part of a process. Yeah. I think it's part of a process. I mean, when I came out, what I knew when I came out of captivity and was elected to a fellowship at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, what I knew was that I did was not going to go back to my old job, to being a recipient of a regular salary, that I, in fact what I was going to do was to earn my own living by writing and lecturing and give my time to the organisations I've just mentioned and other things besides. And I was not going to take any money from them. I was going to do it myself. Now, that would not have happened, I don't believe, had I not experienced what it is to have nothing. I wouldn't have had the courage to take the risk, you know, to give up a salary, for example. Okay, 
I, I did it, and there's no no great shakes about it. But it's just my way of working. But um, that's one of the things that a conscious decision taken at that at that time, which has developed across the years. And and I wonder again, when you were in captivity, that conscious decision, how I'm going to live. You know, whether it was sort of how soon you thought this is how I'm going to live now, or as long as it is. I wonder if that was a gradual thing over the... Oh, gradual, definitely. Yeah. Definitely yes. a gradual thing. You know, things began to open up, and then you began to look for the opportunities. Yeah. Then you see a need for, you know, for example, Hostage UK, mm-hmm. and people approach you and say, as they did, I had loads of people coming to me and saying, you know, we have this particular problem because someone's been taken captive and so on can you help us can you advise us and then the recognition when I found that I was getting a lot of these requests saying to myself well this had better be institutionalized rather than sent around you as a person because otherwise it's going to be an ongoing need and if you're going to um, if it's going to meet a need in the long term institutionalize it rather than just centering it around yourself so that's what I did. And I started as chairman, you know, and then went to president, and that's it. Then you you leave it to other people, and that was the same with um, with many other things. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sure. Um, and could you tell me a bit about how the whole hostage experience, what impact that had on your faith? First of all, I think when you're in a situation like that, you reduce faith to something that's essentially simple, very simple. First of all, I never engaged in what is uh, extemporary prayer. Because I felt if I did that, my psychological condition at the time would simply mean that I'd be always saying, oh God, get me out of here. And I don't believe that God put me there. I believe that I took my own responsibility, made my own decision, and that was that. I was there. So I don't believe in a manipulative God who puts you in a position and then says, right, okay, cope with that. I don't believe that sort of stuff. Um, so first of all, um, in in that situation, I um, fell back, as I've already said, on the language of the prayer book. I said to myself most mornings, um, the communion service, I saved a little bread. I'm not a clergyman, as you know. I never have an invocation that way. But I saved a little bread and um, water in my beaker. And again, another blessing, I could remember the words of the communion service. You know, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, rather in my manifold and great mercies. And all it was all there, you know. I had it, and I could say that. Now, the, what I was doing there was taking part in this great, great act, if you like. And what I used to do in my imagination was say, "Today, I'm going to join the congregation of X in a certain part of the world where I've been, and we'll say the communion service together." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I go to some parts of England, I go to some parts of, of America, or wherever we've been, I've been all over the world, and I just join with them, uh, using my imagination. As far as um, uh, my 
the, the simplicity of it all, I, I think I could sum it up in a few, few words, really. I used to say in the face of my captors, um, you have the power to break my body, and you've tried, because I was tortured uh, and faced a mock execution. You have the power to bend my mind, because I was interrogated, but my soul is not yours to possess. That was a fundamental belief, very simple belief, um, that whatever happened, um, and how, no matter how much I was um, taken over, I couldn't capture my soul because that lay in the hand of God. That's a very, very simple belief, I admit. But it was enough to maintain hope. And if in the situation of extremity, you know, I think you can maintain hope, then that's a great uh, step forward. And again, that's been something that one has been able to hopefully say to other people who found themselves in difficult situations. That while, you know, the old trite saying, while there's life, there's hope. Yeah. You know? yeah. Sure. Um, and this is probably, I was thinking, this is a, I hope this isn't an insultingly simple question. No, no, no. What was the most difficult bit about being... Oh, the most difficult bit, it's very easy to answer. Um, towards the end of my incarceration, I became physically ill. I had a very bad bronchial infection mm. and I couldn't, um, couldn't get my breath. Mm. And I used to have to sit day and night with my back against a wall and I couldn't lie down. Mm. And at that point, they did move me for the last week or so to be with the other hostages, John mm. and McCarthy Brankina. Terry Anderson. And Terry Anderson told me afterwards, he said, when you collapsed two or three times into unconsciousness, we thought you were going to die. Mm -hmm. And I do remember thinking at that point, uh, death would be preferable to what's mm -hmm. becoming a living death. Mm -hmm. But I said, hold on, don't, don't give up. And I'm glad I didn't because I got through it. That was actually, the, the, mm -hmm. quite honestly, that was the most difficult period really. Of, of the whole experience and it was also difficult for my comrades because they'd spent years together mm. um, you know, and surviving then someone is thrust in and looks like he's about to die on them yes, and it, yes. you know the very fact of someone coming in about to die faces them with the prospect mm. of their own death mm. as well so it's a difficult experience for everybody mm. and I felt very sorry for that yeah. and I'm sure you've been asked a million times but are you still in touch with them? oh yes yeah. oh yes, yes. oh yes with yeah. John and yeah. Brian and Terry, and Terry Anderson's daughter, yeah. Yeah. who's written the book recently. Yeah. Mm. Um, and again, looking back, again, I hope this doesn't sound simplistic, but what's what's the most important thing you learnt in those years? That's a good question. What's the important, what's the important thing I learned? I suppose, I don't know, I've really ever thought of the most important thing. It's a very good question. Probably, I suppose, that I am a complex person. There is a deeply introverted side to me, as well as being an extroverted side, but it's a fairly deeply introverted side. And... Um, I've got an awful long way to go now, even an awful long way to go before I achieve what I would 
wish to achieve, which would be a greater degree of uh, inner wholeness. Mm-hmm. So in other words, hopefully a more realistic appraisal of myself as um, a fairly ordinary human being with um, with plenty of failures. Mm-hmm. I understand you've been back to Lebanon mm-hmm. twice, yeah. 2004, yeah. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that like? Fine. Um, I like the I like Lebanon. I like the Lebanese people. They're very friendly, hospitable. I particularly like the Lebanese food, which is very healthy. But I went back to meet with my captors um, with the belief that, uh, simple belief, that if we want to work for better understanding in the world, and if there's going to be political settlement in any area of the world, it can only take place if people on the ground um, face each other and build a relationship of trust between each other. You can't put a political settlement on any people unless there can be trust on the ground. It won't work. And I said, it's all very well me talking about that, but why not go and put it into practice yourself? So I went back to Lebanon. I met with um, Hezbollah. I uh, told them, which is what I've said to you, I want to put the past in the past. They said, what? Well, they were, they were quite surprised, but... Um, you know, they spoke to me as a human being rather than just as a captive. They said, well, what can we do? Mm. So I said, I've just come from the Syrian border and I've seen people who are hungry and cold and driven into exile because of warfare. At least, can you let me have heating oil for them? And they said, yes, we'll do it. Mm. Well, very small gesture. Mm. But if 10,000 people in the occupied territories and 10,000 people in Israel could do that, I think we'd have at least the beginnings of a basis of trust on which you could build a political settlement. It's very naive, very simple, but sometimes we just have to work at it. And the same true in this country with our ethnic differences, our cultural differences and so on. Try and understand. Um, I suppose another thing, just going back, on, I mean, one learns so many things, but about about about. What did you learn and so on? Um, Try and understand why people behave as they behave. Don't be so quick to to judge them and to condemn them. Um, Okay, you you don't appreciate the act, you don't appreciate what they've done, you don't condone hostage taking. Mm. But try and understand what it is that motivates them, why they do it. And that's the same, I think, in everyday life, you know. Don't be so quick to jump on people and knock them down. If this hadn't happened to you, what would be different about you now? Can you can you put any your finger on that in any way? Was that just too? I think I would. Let me put it very simply again. I think to be quite honest with you, I think I would be the poorer for it. Although I wouldn't wish to go through the experience again, and it was a tough experience, of course it was. But many people have had it worse, so I'm not not comparing it, but just say it was a tough experience. But I think I've gained immeasurably from it as a person. And therefore, I can't say I regret it. At the same time, I say I don't want it again. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, I do but I do think I'd be a bit poorer without mm-hmm. it. 
because I wouldn't have had the time to have that degree of self-analyzation, if you like, self-analysis and coming to terms with myself to level. I wouldn't have given myself time for that. So with all that in mind, what what do you hope readers will take away from Solitude? I hope that they will, first of all, I think they'll be, I hope they'll be entertained by it, to be honest. I hope they'll find it an entertaining and interesting book. That's the first okay. thing. And I've written it that way. Um, and then I'd hope it would just uh, encourage them to reflect on solitude in their own life. Do they have it? Can they manage it? What do they do with it? And are they able to make it creative for themselves and for other people? So I hope it would have that. But I didn't write it with um, the view in mind that here am I a great teacher trying to teach you something. I wrote it with mind that here is a book of my experiences. Make what you will of them. And if you can take something creative from it, all the better. If not, well, send it to Oxford. <laughs> and I think my last question is um, do you have another writing project what's next yeah I do yes Um, well I I I want to write um, I have written um, a a comic novel I want to write a comic novel I want to rewrite a a comic novel for the the fact the simple fact is that um, in captivity, I mean, I had to make myself laugh. And so I did make some ridiculous uh, stories in my head. And uh, I thought, well, I must try and capture something of that in a comic novel. So I'm going to I'm going to do that. I would also, and this is a much, much bigger task, I would also like to, and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm capable of it, I think I'll have to do a lot more research than I've got time for at the moment, about communicating spiritual truths today. How do we... Because the old ways have have changed and in some respects broken. There's still that deep desire in people for meaning and for uh, a way to be able to interpret their own lives. And I'd like to be able to address that in some way. That would be a much longer project and something, as I say, I'm not sure I'm capable of doing because there are far better, finer brains than mine around. But I might have a go at that at some point. Sure. This is an epitaph from the book. Do not forget me when I'm old. Do not forget that we loved with a passion that took us away from this world, lost in each other, lost in a realm where in giving we received more than we could ever hope for. Do not forget me when I have departed this life. Hold me in your heart, for we shall be together, and death will not part. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.